Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast summer edition. For all you know, I'm chilling on a beach somewhere in parts unknown, sipping a... a in Orlando. <laughs> so, uh, maybe, it, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe don't triangulate my location. Um, but anyways, yes, it is the summertime. We are back to talk about some honestly some bigger news stories than i think even we expected when we had scheduled this recording session uh the other day but before we get to things like the u.s winning a second consecutive final against mexico lifting the gold cup trophy talking about the u.s women's national team crashing out of the olympics against canada and some other news as well we're going to get on to the big story involving harry kane but allow me to introduce my two fellow co-hosts that have joined me today. Firstly, I am joined by a man who did not hold out on this podcast in order to get a transfer away. It is Caleb Rhodes. Yes, I am still looking. I'm, I'm a free agent. You know, I, I'm not holding out on anything. So, yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, it's very true. We don't pay you. <laughs> I Yeah, this is... Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess I'm a part owner of this podcast, so yep. we're we're pre revenue right now. Um, which hey, that company in Australia, did you see that Afterpay got bought by like thirty billion dollars by Square, even though they've never made a profit, and most of their profits or most of their revenue in the last year was from Bitcoin. So all I'm saying is pre revenue is a pretty good place to be. I can confirm Sounds that like, I did not see that. Sounds like we need to move this show down under. Yeah, but I am also joined by a man who has not been partaking in Arsenal's pretty dismal preseason tour this summer. It is Nathan Strauss. That's true. I mean, everything that could have gone wrong for Arsenal, starting with a pandemic canceling the initially scheduled preseason, has. But it has what it has done is it's really tempered my expectations for the season to come. So I think that's actually going to help me long term. But lads, let's not bury the lead here. Let's jump in straight away with the biggest news story that came out around this morning. And it is that Harry Kane did not return from his scheduled vacation end date back to Hotspur Way. He did not show up for training, much like how he doesn't show up for big games. <laughs> well... <laughs> But yes, Caleb, Harry Kane has not shown up to work in order to put pressure on Daniel Levy and the club in order to find a resolution for him to work his way to, we think, Manchester City and to finalize that transfer. It seems as if Harry Kane is under the impression that a gentleman's agreement was made last season between him and Levy, suggesting that if the club did not meet, I guess, his expectations that season under Jose Mourinho, which we know we all know how that went down, that he could navigate a transfer out of the club. That does not seem to be the case anymore. And Harry Kane has decided to take drastic action in that regard. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on this? I think this is kind of the first indication that this could be a bit nastier than I think we even realized going into this transfer saga. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about, you know, Harry Kane's kind of like option during the Euros. And I think 
it's now been several weeks since the Euros have ended, and we've seen pretty much no movement at all. And I think to him, at least, that has to be worrying. And I don't know where the like sticking point is. I don't know if it's that City are holding firm on their offer and Levy wants, you know, like 150 rather than 100. Um, but I mean, increasingly, it looks like he's going to stay at Spurs. I think each day that he doesn't move, um, like dramatically decreases the odds of a move at all, especially considering the recent rumors around his England teammate, Jack Grealish, also potentially making a move to Manchester City in what has been a pretty quiet summer for the citizens. So I don't know. I, I think this is a pretty dramatic move that I don't really I don't really judge him for. I think it's pretty clear and he has every right to leave in my mind, considering the sort of dismal position of Spurs. But I, as of now, don't think we're going to see Kane in a different kit. So this is so weird because all of this is happening at the same time as the rumors of Jack Grealish to City have also intensified. And I don't know if that's just sort of City using that as sort of smoke and mirrors for Kane because no offense to Jack Grealish because I think he is probably a, a, I mean, not probably, I think he's probably a top 10 player um, in the Premier League and at least in terms of attackers, maybe top five. But Kane fits City's needs like exponentially more than Jack Grealish does because they just desperately need a striker. We saw how City love to go strikerless, but Kane is a generational talent who could very well end up being the all-time leading goal scorer in Premier League history. And Grealish, while he offers many threats, is a little bit more similar to players who City already have on their roster who are you know, competent ball carriers who can draw fouls and who are technical. Um, so I don't know. I like the fact that Kane is holding out because I just love seeing drama at Spurs. But on the other hand, I just think that I think Spurs owe Kane more than Kane owes Spurs at this point, which is something that we've said before on this podcast as well. I think that is true about the fact that he's fully within his rights to explore other options, particularly at this point in his career. You know, he's 28. He's entering what many consider to be like the prime of a striker's career, that like 28 to 31, 32 window. However, the the not showing up to work aspect of this is always very dangerous when it comes to a player's starting to negotiate around this kind of stuff. And with Harry Kane, even more so because the guy has a reputation for being, you know, the consummate professional. You know, he's the England captain. He's the Spurs captain. He's a role model within the league, within the club. And I think within world football, you'd say, and he's not he's a very quiet personality, it seems. And for him to do something like this, you know, he has to be really careful about how he plays it because we all know Daniel Levy is not going to accept any less than what he thinks is Kane's value. You know, like Caleb was saying, whether it be, you know, 120 million, 150 million, whatever that may be. And Levy also knows that he's negotiating with Man City who have the the full capacity to pay whatever the fee really is. So I think if you are Harry Kane, you need to potentially find a way to come to the table here without burning all of the bridges, including the ones that he's built with the Tottenham fan base. And I'm not quite sure how he navigates the situation or tries to maneuver a way out of Spurs without doing something like that. 
I mean, maybe, but I think this is one of those situations where like he holds every single one of the cards because, okay, worst case scenario, he doesn't get the move and then what? Okay. They'll fine him like a week's wages. Sure. But then they're not, not going to play Harry Kane when he is, you know, 60% of their offense and they haven't brought in another striker to the club. In fact, so far this summer, Spurs have brought in just one player, 20-year-old Brian Heal, in a sort of cash plus uh, swap deal with Sevilla for Eric Lamella. He's not a striker. He's not going to replace Harry Kane's, you know, 50-goal contribution output every season. And so no matter what happens, Harry Kane's going to be in a starting 11 for a Premier League team on match day one. And whether that's Spurs or another team, I don't know. But I don't think he's really in that like dire straits with Levy because Levy has no real power in the situation. And I mean, the only thing Harry Kane could do honestly is to continue his boycott into the season. If a transfer isn't done to force through a transfer in January, of course, that is... well, the last time that happened, that was Virgil van Dyke with Southampton. Yeah. And I think the situation was a little different because whereas Spurs are, I want to say somewhere in between a buying and a selling club, Southampton are def- definitely a selling club, but Spurs have, their transfers have not been very good the last couple of years. And I don't say that in a sort of spiteful way. Um, you know, they have found some good value in players like Hoiberg. Um, Reguillon was a good deal, but, um, you know, we've, if they we've end up signing about Christian their Romero, that's right. a very good transfer. Exactly. But they're, 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 they are so front loaded in terms of their production, as Caleb mentioned by Harry Kane, that it's possible that if Harry Kane decides to hold out, which he totally could, I mean, they can find him to, to oblivion, but he doesn't have to play for them. Um, you know, like he could, he could very easily continue this. And then they're left both with a little bit of money, but with no actual first team striker, unless you want them to start playing, I don't know who, who, who would be there. Would they go, when Minson up top as their as their only striker, would it be someone like Mora? Would it be like Lucas Mora, who we've known, you know, cannot act as that pure center forward? Don't uh, they still have Vinicius? No, he was on loan. As I'm pretty sure, I think he's on a two year loan. I'm pretty sure it could be on it. No, uh, it's just no. his back to his, his loan. His loan he's ended. Back. Anyway, yeah. not so the guy. Ser- yeah. So seriously, <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, I think Caleb, you're spot on because really Spurs are poised to be the ultimate losers in this situation. And you know, maybe maybe they say like, look, we don't want 150. We want like 120. Or maybe oh, we don't want 150. We want like 70 and Gabriel Jesus or something. You know, but. I think they have to actually make this sale because they're just going to hurt themselves more every day that they don't. Well, and that's the problem too, right? Like if they don't make the sale, then they also won't have a bunch of money to go and get a striker when we're like, you know, 10 days out from the start of the season. They need money desperately or they need Kane to sign on to playing for the team, which clearly he hasn't. And so that just leaves Levy one option, which is to cut a deal. And the problem, because he has no leverage, he's going to get less than he wants but he simply needs to sell or else it's just going to be a disaster. I think that would be true if they weren't negotiating with Man City who they know they can get whatever the fee is or like they know Man City could pony up for the fee. Like there's no real, I don't think, I think Levy, yes, like he's in a, in terms of a football position, he's in very much like the losing side of this in that either way that he plays this, he's going to end up damaging the team. But the only way that you, 
you know, you don't really damage the team is if you end up selling Kane and you get the money and you're able to reinvest that. However, like we know Daniel Levy, like we know he's not. Michael Carrick once said that negotiating with Daniel Levy was like negotiating with quote unquote a brick wall. Like we know that this is the type of guy who's going to totally rest on his laurels. He's going to be stubborn about this. He's already like, it sounds to me like the relationship between him and Kane is already as far apart as that relationship has ever been. And I think if he knows that and he knows that like he doesn't need to have a particularly great relationship with Kane in order to keep him on the team, he's not going to accept the bid. That is possible. But I think the result is going to be, I mean, Spurs have not improved. Honestly, they've gotten worse because they lost Gareth Bale, who actually, you know, won a lot of points for them last year. They lost their backup striker. They lost Toby Alderweireld, so they don't have much experience in that center back position anymore because Davinson Sanchez has turned out to be quite an average player. They've regressed, and what did they finish last year, like seventh? It's hard to imagine they do better. Meanwhile, Man City can win the league without getting Harry Kane. They probably can't win the Champions League. I don't know. But they don't need him. And so once again, Levy doesn't even really have a lot of ground to like demand more. And at some point, if this sale doesn't go through and Spurs are as poor as they should be, he's going to have his job on the line, honestly, because at some point Spurs fans are going to turn on him. Mm. I think that's the issue he's facing. It's like he's never, despite his hard-nosed negotiations. Have they already tactics, turned on him though? No, but that's my point. But they've but he's never actually like achieved that much given his negotiation. Like he gets money for Gareth Bale once upon a time and buys like 12 Etienne Capoos. <laughs> Like, literally. <laughs> and Christian Eriksen, to be fair. And Christian Eriksen. Christian Eriksen's not there anymore. Yeah. Because no one wants to stay, right? I think Levy is at the end of his his line here because his credibility is pretty shot at this point. And he's probably the one who just needs to realize he needs even just 70 mil from this sale. and just Yeah. Get I, no, Caleb, that's a really fascinating point because it sounds like he's turned over a lot of the control to Fabio Paratici. However he is like firmly entrenched in the Harry Kane conversations. Like Paratici's name is like nowhere to be seen when it comes to like the Kane discourse, if you want to call it that. So for whatever reason, like Daniel Levy has linked himself to this Harry Kane situation. And this is like the one footballing decision that is like entirely his to make without any real input from his new sporting director, but who also seems to be like- running everything else. But also, they're spending 50 mil on Romero, as Romano has basically confirmed it at this point. But who would they sign in terms of strikers, right? right. Like, this is, in, this is the summer before the massive summer striker transfer market. And I just can't think of a, situa- a situation in which a truly top elite striker, someone like Lautaro, could be enticed to go to Spurs right now knowing that there are other better teams that would offer more money and be in a better position. I just don't know who that middle ground striker is. Like Daniel Malin, who's obviously already signed for Dortmund, would have been a striker like that. You know, Boadu. someone with room to... What was that? Boadu or Patsandaka, both of which have moved this summer. Exactly. It's like all of the... They're acting so late into the window right now that they're kind of like... It's almost last call at the bar... And they're not even sure that they're able to pay for the Uber home at this point. Did you pronounce Uber Uber? No, I said Uber. Did I say Uber? I think you said Uber, which would fun. It's a fun way to pronounce that word. I don't know. Uber and Leaft. Leaft? Leaft? 
Yeah. But yeah, I think the point still I think the point still stands that they are every day that this goes by, their their situation gets worse and mm-hmm. worse and the amount of money that they can potentially extract from a deal actually goes down. Yeah, that's why I feel like the Grealish uh Nathan you brought this up at the beginning of the conversation, but that's why I feel like the Grealish negotiations that have turned very public is sort of a Harry Kane like you need to start making moves or else we're going to move on from Man City. I think it's very much a smokescreen. I think if it was up to City, they would get Harry Kane over Grealish 10 times out of 10. But they need to find a way to coerce Harry Kane into this kind of situation where he's you know, publicly stomping his feet and demanding a way out. And I, I think it's interesting because you know, if it was anyone else and not the England captain and someone who has not won a lot in his career or anything for that matter, this would be received in a far worse manner. And I think that is kind of an important conversation to have because if this was like someone like Paul Pogba, let's say, or even like Wayne Rooney back in the day who did not have a very starling reputation, I think this would be treated far differently. But Harry Kane is kind of a special consideration when it comes to the situation, as you kind of mentioned, Caleb. I mean, like, what hasn't Harry Kane given to this club that at some point he should be allowed to go somewhere else? Because I think the issue he has as a player and he's going to go down as one of the best strikers in Premier League history, potentially the top scorer in Premier League history, if he can keep up this pace. How crazy would it be if he never won a single trophy at the club or international level? In this in this age of soccer, too, one club players are rather rare. Big players can often move to big teams. The markets are not as lubricated now as they were because of COVID. But top teams like Manchester City still have cash. It'd just be nuts for Levy or anyone to deny him the chance to win literally like the League Cup. Like, I know it sounds terrible, but like get this man a League Cup. And I think we've seen with Spurs is they couldn't even get him that. And I, I don't know how to figure all the Grealish stuff into this exactly. Because maybe you guys know more, but like, where have Aston Villa gotten all this like money to spend? Well, their owners, their right? Ownership. They because they spent more than like almost every other club in Europe the year after they got promoted. Right. And they spent like a hundred million or something. It's it's interesting. They've made some good deals though, but I, they all seem like deals in anticipation of Grealish leaving. Exactly. No, exactly, exactly. I was thinking like, so they brought in Buendia who's one of my like cult favorite type players who is a good creator. They're rumored to be bringing in Leon Bailey, who's less of a creator, more of a score and a little streaky. But between those two deals, that's like going to be 60, 70 million euros outlay, which is about what the Grealish is being quoted as. And, and so they're I guess, looking, you know, they, they bid on Emil Smith Rowe. They're looking on, they're looking at bringing in James Ward Prowse to fill like a creative void. So it yeah. certainly seems like they're teeing up a Grealish exit. Yeah. But they're also talking about like renewing his contract again after he just signed one last year. And I think that's a similar issue to Harry Kane is that Kane should just never have signed that six-year contract right. a year and a half, two years ago. Like That was one of the silliest things for him to do because it's kind of put him in a far more complicated negotiating uh, situation. Yeah. yeah, but I guess uh, you know my question for you guys is, is the Grealish thing as much of a smokescreen? Like, is it an either or for City, do you think? Or do you think they're like actually interested in both? Just because the activity of Villa in the market almost suggests to me, as you guys said, that they're anticipating a Grealish exit. 
so I think they are interested in both. However, it seems to me like they know that the perception of them getting both would be very, very bad for like the reputation of Manchester City, which, quite frankly, in the transfer market is already kind of a meme. So <laughs> I, I think they know optically they have to pick one or the other. And I think, as Nathan said, getting Harry Kane, you know, in the vacuum of Sergio Aguero and then playing strikerless for a large portion of last season is far more beneficial for them long term and even the immediate term than getting someone like Jack Grealish, who is an amazing player and would immediately, you know, be fit somewhere in their starting 11. But at the end of the day, is very much like a lot of the players they do have. I think if you're Aston Villa and you are kind of building the next Leicester City-esque project and perhaps even more so definitely looking to compete for a place in Europe with all the money that they're spending you'd be perfectly fine with giving Jack Grealish a new even more expensive contract and still having depth of the quality of an Emil Buendia and Leon Bailey and if he goes and you're able to bring in someone like a James Ward-Prowse or whoever it may be because it looks like Emil Smith-Rowe is staying at Arsenal then that is you know, equally good too. I think Villa have kind of played this perfectly somewhat. Well, I don't know. This is, you know, watch this space for Harry Kane. I think it's very complicated. And I think no matter what happens, pretty much Kane himself can only look pretty good. But I don't know. It's getting very, very tight. But maybe we should move on. Do we want to talk about the Gold Cup? Let's talk about the Gold Cup. What a game this was. It was <laughs> USA 1, Mexico 0 at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. The U.S. men's national team lifts a second trophy this summer after a second consecutive victory over Mexico. Tata Martino left in tatters after this game. You know His future is very much up in the air as the head coach of the Mexico national team. But this has been... A massive, massive statement summer for Greg Greg Berhalter, yeah, and two sets of US MNT players. Nathan Strauss. Yeah, I mean, I think Greg Berhalter came into this uh, came into this cycle with a ton of pressure. He has certainly come out of it in in, in shining colors. The Gold Cup is really weird because it's not. It is not a premier tournament by any means. I think you can look at the composition of this Team USA. It is really the USA B team. You know, only one of the players in the starting 11 yesterday is a European player at the moment uh, in in the form of Matthew Hoppe. You know, it's a lot of MLS and sort of homegrown players. You know, you've got Matt Turner, who I think at this point has probably earned the USA number one job going forward in goal. But beating Mexico, even a Mexico B team with your B team is always going to be an accomplishment. And they actually did what they needed to. You know, there was no surprise loss to Jamaica like there was a few years ago this time. They beat totally normal North American team Qatar in a sort of ugly fashion uh, in the semifinals. You know, Qatar, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right next to Canada. (laughs) Yeah, so back all, when all, Pangea was one continent, did yeah. Qatar slip right into Cutter. Cape Cod? That's how it fit together. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So that, all in all, yeah. it's a, it's a good tournament. Um, it's good experience for a lot of younger homegrown players. Obviously, a couple of this these members of Team USA have since actually undergone transfers to Venezia, like during this tournament. 
Well, okay, so this is funny. So Gianluca Busio, the player you're talking about, as far as I understand, hasn't technically completed the transfer yet because during the celebrations in the locker room last night, someone on Team USA went on Instagram Live and went up to Busio and was chanting like, Venezia, Venezia, Venezia. And he was like, bro, like you can't say that. Like the transfer hasn't happened yet or something and had to like <laughs> have him like take it down. But wait, no, he is gonna go, but it technically hasn't happened yet. Just wanted to clarify. Yep. But yeah, I think the the point is like there's a lot of uh I feel like I say this all the time. There's a lot of unheralded players on this team, particularly domestic players. And I think players with something to prove and players who Greg Berhalter has also put a lot of faith in. And I think I was skeptical of the Berhalter hire because I'm always, you know, we, Jurgen Klinsmann, we gone from Klinsmann, who, you know, was a bit of a madman, but also an established European name to Bruce Arena, who looked like was just a stopgap and didn't really, know elevate the team much to you know a young coach in greg berhalter who had only mls you know for a team coming off of not qualifying for the world cup that was a bit of an odd move but i think he's cultivated a really good culture that has galvanized players both internationally and domestically and look no further than him being so bold as to include matthew hoppa and jossie zardes in the same team you know two players who have a lot to prove but for different reasons and getting really good performances out of both of them i have way more faith in berhalter coming out of this summer than i did going in and that bodes really well for this team that now has a plethora of options in almost every position for world cup qualifying yeah and i think you know all of this like the average age of this team must have been like 23 or something like that but all of this is looking so good as we, you know, keep thinking about that touchstone, which will be the 2026 World Cup. And obviously most of these players won't end up being in that squad, but some of them will. And I also don't think we should underplay the quality that this Mexico side had, even though it was, you know, a bit of a B team, but it had significantly more experience than almost any player on the American side. Hector Herrera, is in his 30s, has been playing in Europe for pretty much his entire career. Funes Mori has been, you know, one of the top strikers in Liga MX, MX, for like, you know, five to 10 years now. Jesus Corona is a great player for Porto. Jonathan Dos Santos obviously played in MLS, but, you know, played for Barcelona very briefly before that. Hector Moreno, another very experienced international player. Like this was on paper Mexico's game to lose and they did it was a stern test and i think the u.s came out on top and i think this result or this game is way more positive for team usa than any experience a kind of similarly composed u23 team may have had at the olympics this summer Mm. which the team lost out on and so i think there's a silver lining in missing out on you know olympic men's soccer which as we talked about last episode has its issues towards winning this gold cup now. Yeah, Nathan, the game itself, you know, we're not going to remember the actual game. <laughs> uh, no. Next time we talk about it, very physical affair as games against Mexico usually are. Very scrappy. Lots of potential head trauma involved. Lots of questionable referee calls. Lots of yellow cards that could have been red cards. Um, and then inevitably... The USA scores off of a Miles Robinson header 
in the 116th minute. But I think Which as may or may not have been offsides. May or may not have been offsides, but you know, we may never know. Yeah. Um, even though we probably do. But I think as we've talked about, particularly in the past few months, this is how you know you grind out games at the international level. You know, you keep it look at what England did this summer. You know, keep it very tight, keep control of the game up to a certain point, and then eventually take the opportunities that come your way. And there were a lot of opportunities in this game. There is some real stormtrooper aim on display from both teams, uh, particularly from Paul Ariola of oh the U.S. men's national team, who would have been the pantomime villain had they gone on to lose this. But, Nathan, it has to be said that the U.S. looks looks to be learning how to win at the international level, which can only mean big things for World Cup qualifying. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I One of the phrases that I hate is the sort of, like, learning how to win or, like, installing belief in the squad because, like, this is really a team that should have been at the Olympics instead of participating at the gold cup. And, you know, a lot of these players who are, albeit young, I don't think have futures with the full squad, um, at least not in the sort of Olympic, not in the sort of world cup squad. Uh, I think that obviously the big test is going to be world cup qualifying and making an impact with the full team, which, you know, includes players like Christian Pulisic and, you know, the, the full cohort of elite players like Weston McKinney as well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this belief can carry over to those guys, but I do think the fact that this is a pretty bifurcated squad with, you know, those who will be in the full cycle and those who won't, it makes me a little hesitant about the idea that like, just because Berhalter can win with these teams against like Martinique and Canada and the U and, and Mexico, um, like, I'm not sure how that's going to translate over to the hex, or I guess it's now the octagon, technically, of World Cup qualifying in, in North America. Well, they're going to do MMA fighting to qualify for the World <laughs> Cup. That's wild. Anyways, uh, shall we move on from the Gold Cup to another U.S. team with far less fortunate outcomes? Uh, unfortunately. The U.S. women's national team, probably pound for pound, the best women's team in the world, have... I think has to be said has have underperformed at this Olympics in Tokyo. You know, it has been, I think quite a shocking tournament from them. I think a lot of players have underperformed on the pitch. There's been a lot of really freaky results, including an opening day drubbing to Sweden. And that is all concluded in a semifinal loss to Canada. One nil, a Canadian penalty sealed the deal. And the U.S. women's national team will not be repeating their Olympic glory. Sweden, who have now gone on to make the gold medal match after a 1-0 victory over Australia. But the vibes the vibes for this team were, were just off from that first game. We're starting to see that the generation of Carly Lloyd and Rapino and Kristen Press, maybe even Alex Morgan is kind Dahl of... Kemper. Dahl Kemper. A lot of these players that are, you know, in their 30s, some pretty far into their 30s, might be over. And it might be time to get some new blood into this U.S. women's national team. As I think we enter, you know, honestly, like a new generation in women's football 
which I think in the last decade has really started to take off over the globe. Just yesterday, La Masia, for instance, had their first nine women's players join their youth team. And I think the days of just assuming pretty much that the U.S. women's team would roll over any other competition are probably, if not over after this game, are pretty close to over. And, you know, we, sh- we should prepare for a future where, you know, United States hegemony, at least in this sphere, um, might be starting to wane. Yeah, I think of the 16 players who appeared for Team USA in today's match, only three of them were below the age of 27, which is a pretty shocking number, but it really illustrates your point well. And to be fair, there is a new generation of incredibly talented players. Mal Pugh, especially Katarina Macario, who, you know, multi-time Mac Herman award winner, uh, or maybe one-time Mac Herman award winner, chose USA um, over uh, over Brazil, and I believe she was also eligible for another country. Um, and she's already moved on to play for Lyon in France rather than, um, you know, accept her spot as the top overall pick or presumptive top overall pick in the NWSL. There are younger players, and obviously, like Rose Lavelle, 26 years old, like plenty of yeah. fu- plenty of future there. Um, Tierna Davidson, only 22 years old and starting alongside 36 or 37-year-old Becky Sauerbrunn at the back. But your point does stand, you know, and this is probably the last um, the last cycle that we've seen for some of the most prolific players of all time. Like Rapino, 36 years old, Carly Lloyd, 39 years old, the entire front three today were, I want to say, either 29 or 30 or older. Um, and so it's time for the makeup of the national team going forward to be reflective of that and not sort of cling to the dying embers. I will say shout out to Christine Sinclair, who was obviously the all time leading goal scorer in international soccer um, for not taking the penalty today, despite the fact that it would have been her role because the substitute keeper, Adriana French is her uh, club keeper with the thorns and they practice on each other all the time. So I thought that was some good leadership to let Jesse Fleming uh, take the pen instead. Jesse Fleming, who uh, had a really good season for Chelsea last year and about half the year with with Chelsea WFC. Yeah, and I think uh, to Caleb's point, the U.S. women's national team is looking behind them and seeing the likes of Vivian Medima, who they did play in this tournament and, and did manage to get the win against the Netherlands. But she is potentially like one of the best players in the world in both sides of the sport, men and women. So there are players... I wouldn't even say like starting to come up like they have arrived, like the Vivian Medina, the Medimas of the world have arrived. So they do need to be competitive in this arena and start to look at changing the guard somewhat going forward. Yeah. yeah. Viv, I mean, just one last note on Viv Medima in a, in a, in a season where Arsenal men's football didn't do terribly well. Arsenal women's football also didn't do terribly well because Arsenal Arsenal women have been one of the best teams since the formation of the WSL. But take a look at Viv Miedema's scoring numbers. Good Lord. It's absolutely ridiculous. She, I think she has a hundred goals and 88 caps for the Netherlands or something insane like that. Like she is over a goal per game. She's already the, the, the greatest scorer in the history of the WSL as well. Yeah. It's nuts. Players like Jill Horde as well, who is yes. obviously a her teammate. Yes. Um, so point is, it's not the USA's world anymore. We need to start seeing more of these younger players who are very talented um, be included in these squads. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us on this episode. We are going to be back with you next week. We are 
going to be in full flow, full preview mode. We're going to be talking, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Premier League. It is back next oh, week. Can oh you believe God. it? It's I like can. It's 10 days from now. I, it's actually <laughs> shocking. Like, where has the time gone? Oh, my goodness. Yes, but we are going to have some special guests next week. We can guarantee that. It won't just be <laughs> the three of us crusty olds talking about the Premier League once again. We're going to inject some new life. Not to say that you haven't been enjoying us, because I've been enjoying doing this this summer. Anyways, before I lose the plot here, I didn't sleep much last night. Oh, it's coming home. And when I mean it's coming home, it's coming to an RSS feed near you. I've been Nick Govindan. Caleb Reds. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>